Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, its watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early, you stay up late, toiling for food to eat. He grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born to one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, for they will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. These are the words of the 127th Psalm, penned by Solomon. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba, and like his father, he ruled and reigned Israel for some 40 years. Solomon had everything, except he had a gaping hole in his spirit that nothing could satisfy. In the opening two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's this Solomon who declares that everything in life is meaningless. That word that's rendered meaningless can also be translated empty or, as in our passage, vain. Solomon declares that everything in life is meaningless, it's empty, it's vain. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that life is like a man chasing the wind. It's pointless. It's without purpose. In those opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, it is Solomon who begins to itemize the things that he used to chase after. He attained worldly wisdom. He went to some of the best academic institutions his world had to offer. And even though he had gained a lot of knowledge, he did not have answers to the most basic of human questions. At the end of the day, after acquiring all types of worldly wisdom, Solomon says that is meaningless. He immersed himself into his work. He was the first one in the office, the last one to leave in the evening. He was hoping to find significance by his profession. He was hoping to find significance by what he did, the work that he gave himself to. But at the end of the day, even that he declared meaningless. So then Solomon turned to his projects. You and I would call them hobbies, interests, passions. And he said that at the end of the day, after doing all of those passions, after doing those hobbies, those interests of building buildings and planting vineyards and landscaping parks, all of that left my life meaningless. Solomon had all the money in the world. His bank account was fat with gold and silver. There were more flocks and herds belonging to Solomon than anyone else in all of Israel. And Solomon rode in the fanciest of chariots. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, it is Solomon who says, I denied my eyes nothing I desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. What he means by that is if he saw something that he wanted, he bought it because he had the ability to do it. So if he wanted it, he attained it. Yet even after all of that worldly wealth, he says life is meaningless. Solomon was never alone on a Friday night. In fact, Solomon was never alone any night of the week. He had 700 wives, 300 mistresses, yet not even a thousand women could fill the empty satisfaction 
in his life. After pursuing all of those things, Solomon declares life is meaningless. I don't know about you, but I've met people like Solomon. I've met individuals who have tried to give themselves to worldly wisdom. They have smartest man in the room syndrome. They want to be the smartest one in the conversation. I've met individuals who have immersed themselves into their work, hoping that somehow by what they do, they'll have significance in life. Oh, I've met individuals who just give themselves completely to their hobbies, their passions, their interests, gone all the time doing the things they hope to make them happy. Oh, I've met individuals who pursued worldly wealth. Some of them actually attained it. They had more money than month. They had more money than they knew what to do with. Oh, I've met individuals who have tried to find life's satisfaction in the sensual embrace of another person. And like Solomon, they all conclude that that is not fulfilling and life is meaningless. If that's all life is, the stuffing of our calendars with activities, the filling of our minds with information, if that's all life is, the fulfilling of our hobbies and our habits, the pursuit of all types of worldly pleasure, if that's all that life is, then life is meaningless. It is void. It is empty of any long-lasting purpose. If that's what life is all about, then life is meaningless. There's got to be something more to life than just filling our calendars. There's got to be something more to life than even just filling our minds with information. There's got to be more to life than filling our bank accounts. There's got to be more to life than just our own personal hobbies and interests. I've met people like Solomon. You have too. And maybe there are times that you and I resemble Solomon maybe even more than we would ever like to admit. Andre Batov was a Russian novelist. He grew up under a communist atheist regime. He writes these words. In the 27th year of my existence, I was on the metro to Leningrad, and I was in the pit of despair. It has seemed as if my life had come to a screeching halt and I could not see anything in my future. And then all of a sudden, a phrase came to my mind, a phrase that would not let me go, a phrase that I kept repeating, without God, life makes no sense. He said, I rode that phrase all the way up the metro. I rode it as if it was a staircase. I went up the staircase, off the metro, and I walked into the marvelous light of the Lord. Without God, life makes no sense. Without God, life makes no sense. Without God, life makes no sense. But with God, all things become clear. With God, there is now purpose and meaning in life. Without God, life makes no sense. For Andre Batov, this was a breakthrough. Solomon has a similar breakthrough in the quietness of his study when he's sitting there to pen Psalm 127. He realizes that without God, life makes no sense. Unless the Lord is leading what I'm doing, then what I'm doing doesn't matter all that much. 
Unless God is guiding me into what I'm doing, then all the things I give myself to, they don't matter very much. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, its watchmen stand guard in vain. Solomon knew a thing or two about building a building. He understood you can build a house with or without God. But unless God is the chief architect, then your house and all of its beauty and all of its splendor doesn't amount to very much. He knew a thing or two about homeland security. He knew what it was to protect the city, to protect the nation. And Solomon says, unless the Lord watches over the city, its watchmen stand guard in vain. You can protect a country with or without God. You can run a government with or without God. You can establish a culture with or without God. But if God is not the four-star general, it doesn't matter how many military are in your might. It doesn't matter how advanced your weapons are because it really doesn't amount to very much. Unless God is leading what you're doing, then what you're doing doesn't matter all that much. That breakthrough, that light bulb, that lightning bolt... That analogy works in just about every area of life. Business, church, marriage, parenting. You do realize that you can build a Fortune 500 company with or without God. It's very possible. There are a lot of people who have made a fortune, a lot of people that have built a Fortune 500 company with or without God. But unless God is the CEO, then whatever that company produces doesn't matter all that much. You can run a church with or without God. I wouldn't advise doing it without God, but it can be done. You can do the daily operations with or without God, but unless God is the centerpiece of everything that church does, unless God is the shepherd of the flock, then that church is just spinning her wheels. A man and a woman can get married with or without God. But if that marriage is not built on the bedrock and the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I promise you that when the storms come over the horizon, that marriage will collapse with a thunderous clud. A mom and a dad can parent children with or without God. A lot of people in our day that are trying to do it without the Lord. It's possible you can actually raise children with or without God. But if the dad is not being directed by the Lord, and if the mom is not giving godly guidance, then all that parental activity doesn't matter all that much. This breakthrough is profound. It, it, it's really a, kind of an earth-shattering kind of thing. Unless the Lord is leading what I'm doing, then what I'm doing doesn't matter all that much. This is what Solomon comes to. Unless the Lord builds the house... It's builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, it's watchmen stand guard in vain. And then Solomon speaks to those of us who live to work and work to live. You rise early. You stay up late. Why? Toiling for food to eat. Now, Solomon is not belittling hard work. He's not criticizing early risers or those who burn the midnight oil. In fact, Solomon would tell you it is good to have a great hard work ethic. 
God's people need to be some of the best workers on the planet. He's not belittling that. But what he is calling us to question is why do you work so hard? Why do you get up early and stay up late? Why do you work so hard? Today's Father's Day. And if we could survey a hundred dads and ask the question, why do you work so hard? You know, the number one answer on the survey says to provide for my family. That's what we say. We work so hard to provide for our family. Yet Solomon even asked it in a deeper level. Are you sure that's why? So what are you providing for your family? If the answer is, I just work more so I can make more, so we can spend more, so we can have more, so we can attain more, so we can consume more on ourselves, then Solomon is just tapping into the American dream, isn't he? And he's not even American. But he's tapping into this reality that the reason we work so hard is so that we can get a good job. And the reason we want a good job is so we can have a lot of money. And we are enticed into this rat race called life. We're supposed to keep up with the Joneses. I don't know who the Joneses are. I've never met them, but I'm told I'm supposed to keep up with them. We've got to keep up with the Joneses. We're enticed to run this rat race. And at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is we just want to be a fat rat. We just want to have more than enough. We just want to have more than we could ever hope to dream of. We want to be a fat rat. It's Kim Blanchard who asked an intriguing question. What is the desire? What is the enjoyment of the rat race? Even if you win the race, you're nothing more than a rat. That's a pretty accurate observation, oh, Kim Blanchard, don't you think? Even if you win this thing called the rat race, you're nothing more than a rat. It is Solomon who taps into that. Why do you get up early? Why do you stay up late? You're toiling for food to eat. What does he mean by that? You're working so hard just to meet temporary pleasure. It's nothing long-lasting. It's nothing meaningful. It's nothing real purposeful. Guess what? You probably ate breakfast this morning, and in just a couple of hours, what are you going to do? You're going to eat again. And if you ate today, what are you going to want to do tomorrow? You're going to want to eat again because it's not like you eat once and that's it. Never have to eat again. It's a temporal pleasure. It just satisfies for a little while. And Solomon is having this aha moment where he realizes, you know what? I have given my life to things that are just temporary. I've given my life to just food. I've been toiling. The word toil means to work. I've been laboring. I've been sweating by my brow. I've been working. Why? Just to have more stuff. Just to attain more things. And I put it all under the guise of I'm providing for my family. And Solomon says, listen, we just want to be fat rats. That's all we want to be. So we toil so hard for temporary pleasure in life. For food that's here today and gone tomorrow. He puts a very interesting statement at the end of verse 2. He being God grants sleep to those he loves. That's intriguing, isn't it? He grants sleep to those he loves? That's how the New International Version translates it. The King James Version translates it. He giveth his beloved sleep. Sounds very poetic, doesn't it? That's how King Jimmy understood it to be under, uh, translated. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase called The Message, translated the Hebrew in this way. Do you not know that God enjoys giving rest to those he loves? So whether you look at the New International Version or the King James Version or the 
message, all of them are across the spectrum of biblical translations, it seems that the vast majority of them say that the way you understand that Hebrew phrase is that he gives sleep to those he loves. Well, that sounds good so long as you're a sound sleeper. But if you wake up at the drop of a hat, if you wake up four times to have to go to the bathroom, if you don't sleep very soundly, if you don't sleep very long, this can be quite problematic. He grants sleep to those he loves. What about those of us who don't sleep very well? What about those of us who don't sleep very long? If it's true that God's love is revealed in sleep patterns, then I got to tell you something. God loves teenagers. Because <laughs> they can sleep till 1.30 in the afternoon and it's no big deal, right? If this is true, God does not like newborns. And if it's true, he really despises first-time parents. Because I can remember when Molly, Grace, and Nathan were infants, nobody was getting much sleep in the Watkins household. So if it's true, he grants sleep to those he loves, then if you're sleeping well, God loves you. But if you're not sleeping well, I'm sorry, God must not love you very much. Is God's love really revealed in sleep patterns? I mean, if you take the scripture at face value, it seems that that's what it says. He grants sleep to those he loves, which is fine so long as you sleep well. If your Bible's anything like mine, there's an alternate translation to that last phrase of verse 2. It's usually found in the footnote of your Bible. The alternate translation says, for while they sleep, he provides for those he loves. You say, what's the big deal? He grants or provides sleep for those he loves? Or while they sleep, he provides for those he loves. You say potato, I say potato. You say pajamas, I say pajamas. What's the big difference? I think there's a huge difference. I think that the alternate translation is actually the most accurate translation. That while they sleep, he being God provides for those he loves. Once again, Solomon is not advocating laziness. He's not just saying, oh, take a siesta. He's not just saying, hey, take a nap. But he's saying, listen, you give yourselves and you work so hard for food that is here today and gone tomorrow. It'll spoil quickly. You uh, work so hard for temporary pleasure. I want you to know you serve the Lord and even while you sleep, he provides for you. Even while you sleep, he advances his agenda. Even while you sleep, he works in your life. Even while you sleep, he moves you from point A to point B. Think about who's writing this psalm. It's Solomon. What is Solomon most noted for? His godly wisdom. I said earlier that Solomon gave himself to worldly wisdom and said that was meaningless. Absolutely it is. But godly wisdom is of value in every way. In 1 Kings chapter 3, it is Solomon who is in Gibeon. And while he is sleeping, he has a dream. And God appears to him in this dream and says, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon asked for a discerning heart, the ability to godly and accurately judge right from wrong. And when Solomon woke up, he realized this was more than a dream. It was reality. And God had given him godly wisdom. That wisdom was known both near and far. People would come all over the region just to hear what Solomon had to say, how he would judge a case, what decision he would make when presented a crisis. 
He was known by this provision of God that was given to Solomon when? When Solomon was fast asleep. It was given not because Solomon was cute or clever or ingenious or smart. It was given simply because while he was sleeping, God provided for those he loved. Also, I want you to think about the name Solomon. Solomon always knew who he was and where he came from. Obviously, he knew his mom and dad, David and Bathsheba. You may recall the story that David and Bathsheba initially had a one-night stand. That one-night stand resulted in a pregnancy. A pregnancy that I don't know if anybody really wanted. David did his best to cover it up. The Bible says that that baby that was born only lived seven days. And then that baby died. Nathan the prophet came back, gained an audience with King David. Said, David, um, you and Bathsheba will have another son. They did have another son, a bouncing baby boy named Solomon. Now, Solomon's a good name. Nothing wrong with Solomon. Solomon's a great name. Some of you may be named Solomon. That's a fantastic name. But later, Nathan came back. I can well imagine in David's life that whenever Nathan arrived, eventually, David was glad to see Nathan because Nathan would always give a word from God. Now, the first time he came, he didn't like it very much because Nathan looked at him, peered him in the eyes and said, thou art the man. And he had some harsh things to say, but eventually they became good friends. The prophet showed up and Nathan said to David, your son, Solomon, let me tell you what God wants you to call him. Do you know his name? Do you know what God called Solomon? The name Jedidiah. Do you know what Jedidiah means? Loved by God. Jedidiah, loved by God. A name that was given to Solomon. It was given to David to call Solomon so that every time that David yelled out Solomon's name, he was reminded, I'm still loved by God. And this child is loved by God. Jedidiah, 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 come in and help your mother with the dishes. Jedidiah, clean up the kitchen. Jedidiah, clean up your room. Jedidiah, help me in the field. Jedidiah, every time he spoke it, he was reminding himself, I am loved by God. And this child is loved by God. What does Solomon say in Psalm 127? While they sleep, he being God provides for who? For those he loves. He provides for all the Jedidiahs. He provides for all the children of God. If you are a child of the Lord, you are loved by God. He is an awesome, great father. And this is a beautiful picture of who God is in your life. As you, the child of God, relates to God the Father. He is the one who loves you infinitely. You are loved by God. Jedediah. I'll give you another scripture verse. It's Deuteronomy 33, 12. This is an awesome picture. Get ready for your socks to be blown off. This is a tremendous picture. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12. It says that the beloved of the Lord rest between his shoulders. That's an awesome picture. It must mean one of two things. Either that as a parent picks up a child, so God picks us up 
And he allows us to rest between his shoulders as he carries us from point A to point B. Or it could mean that God allows us to ride piggyback on his back, just like a playful father will allow his child to ride piggyback and they'll have a great time together as they go from point A to point B. Regardless, it's a beautiful picture of how God interacts with you. He is your loving father. You are his Jedediah. You are beloved of the Lord. So he allows you, my friend, to rest between his shoulders. To rest between his shoulders. To be carried in his arms or to ride piggyback on the back of God. What an awesome picture of a loving God. Oh, we can relate to this, can't we? I don't do this much anymore. But when Molly Grace and Nathan were younger... We'd be gone all day, be come back, and what would happen to those young children? Oh, they'd fall asleep in the back of the car. We'd pull in the driveway. And Jane Ellen would say, please, don't wake them up. Yes, ma'am. So what would I do? To the best of my ability, I would gingerly scoop them out of the car seat. And I would hold them close between my shoulders. And then I would carry them up the steps, into the house, through the hallway, down into their room. And I would gently lay them down and tuck them in. The next morning, they would wake up. I don't know if they ever thought this, but I always wondered. I wondered if they thought, how did I get here? Last thing I remember, I was in the back seat of the car. And now... I'm safe and sound right here in my bed. How did I get here? And you know what the answer would be? Father carried you. Have you ever looked back over your life, Jedediah? You ever looked back over your life, beloved of the Lord? You ever looked back and thought to yourself, how did I get here? How did I get here? How did I get here? How did that problem get resolved? How did that scenario get turned out? How did I get from point A to point B? Answer, Father carried you. And those moments when you were fast asleep, maybe physically or spiritually, you were fast asleep, you were sawing logs, and what was your loving Heavenly Father doing? He had scooped you up, he rested you between his shoulders, and he carried you, and he transformed you, and he worked his agenda in your life. He was changing you and moving you, getting you from point A to point B, from where you were to where he wanted you to be, all because he is God and you are beloved of God. The answer? father carried me. Solomon is having a breakthrough moment. This is a very emotional thing for him. He's saying, I, I am loved by the Lord and so are you. So in vain you rise early and you stay up late and, and you toil for food to eat. Don't you know that while you sleep, he provides for those he loves. Solomon then gives us an example of something that we can give our work to. He gives us an example of a God-sized project. He says, you know, we spin our wheels for what? For temporary pleasure. We, we spin our wheels for food to eat. He says, let me, let me give you a God-sized venture. Let me give you something that God really approves of. You want your life to have meaning. Let me give you something that God wants you to invest in. Are you ready? The answer Children, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward from him. He's not saying that you need to have a child-centered home. 
He's not advocating child worship where you worship the ground your children walk on and they can't do anything wrong and you always give them trophies and you always do Facebook posts. He's not saying child worship or anything like that. But he is saying your children are a gift from God. Not just your children, all children are a gift from God. He compares parenting to archery. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons or daughters born to one's youth. A skilled warrior would have to notch the arrow in the bow, pull back on the string. And this archer was a mighty warrior. And he, at the precise moment, would launch that arrow into enemy territory. He would launch it with such precision and such accuracy and such skill that that arrow would land in enemy lines. And it would accomplish far greater things than the warrior could ever do himself. The warrior knew he could not get to enemy lines, but the arrow could. So he would notch the arrow, pull back on the string, and with deadly accuracy, he would let it fly, and it would have tremendous effect wherever it lands. Don't miss the analogy. The analogy is, listen, the Lord is is one who gives you and entrusts you the next generation. And so you and I, we, we have to do our best to train them and to nurture them, to direct them and correct them and to put them in the right spot where we eventually, one day, we pull back on the string and we let her fly. It's not that we shoot our children. Some days you want to, but don't do it. It's not that we shoot our children. We propel our children into the future. We propel them into enemy lines. And if they're trained well, Wherever they land, they'll have a great impact. You do realize that your children, my children, are students. They're going to do greater things for the kingdom of God than we could have ever done. You do know that, don't you? I mean, some of those right there, seated right there on the shelf, some of those students, some of those children right down the hallway in the children's wing, they're going to do greater things for the kingdom than we could ever do. As the warrior, we understand that the arrow is far more effective than we are because the arrow can get into places that we can't go. And what's the job of the parent? It's to train the child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That you propel him or her from the house and wherever they land, they have a positive impact for the kingdom. That's why Solomon says, blesses the man whose quiver is full of them. I don't know if that necessarily means you need to have a bunch of children. I mean, it may, but probably what it means is you need to use your influence over a great many individuals for the good and glory of God. Listen, you don't have to have biological children to be parental. Don't let anybody tell you that if you don't have a biological child, then you can't be a father, you can't be a mother. That's hogwash. Yes, you can. There are a lot of guys who can father a child. But only the special dudes are called dads. And so you, my friend, you influence the next generation. Why do we call ourselves the faith family? Is there any other place on the planet where you can come together and you literally have hundreds of moms, hundreds of dads, thousands of children all at your disposal? Is there any place like this on the planet? The answer is no. If I were to ask you, how many children do you have? Well, I've got two. Eh, wrong. You've got hundreds of children. 
They're right down the hallway. They're right across the street. They're seated right up there. We have hundreds of children at our disposal. Solomon calls them arrows, and we've got to guide them and direct them and propel them. This, my friends, is a God-sized project. Solomon says, don't give yourself to things that are just here today, gone tomorrow. Don't give yourself just to temporal meeting of needs as far as what food am I going to eat? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? No, life is so much more than that. Because without God, life makes no sense. Listen, somebody is going to influence our students. It might as well be us. Somebody's going to influence our children. Somebody's going to have, have the hand on the bow. It might as well be a skilled warrior called a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody is going to propel them. It might as well be you, Jedediah. It might as well be you, skilled warrior. So Solomon says that they will not be brought to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. That's what he's saying. Wherever they land, they're going to have a tremendous influence. The gate, the city gate, that was a place where judicial transactions took place, financial transactions took place. And oh, yes, when the enemy would come up the hill, he would first knock on the front door. Because after all, if the gate's open, why don't you just go right in? Instead of wasting all your efforts to climb over the wall, Solomon says, those arrows, that next generation that you propel into the future, they will not be put to shame. They will contend well so that you can sit back and say, that's my boy. That's my girl. That's my godly guy. That's my godly gal. There they go. Those are our students. Those are our children. Yeah, there they go. And they are defending the faith. They are advancing the kingdom. They are doing effectively far more than we could ever do on our own. Praise God for the Jedediahs, the beloved of the Lord. A long time ago, I heard James Dobson. And James Dobson apparently was talking to a bunch of parents and he said, our greatest responsibility is to pass the torch of the faith to our children. Our greatest responsibility, dad, mom, church, our greatest responsibility is to pass the torch of the faith to our children. So our greatest responsibility is not to teach your son how to throw a vicious curveball. Your greatest responsibility is not to teach him how to spin a spiral 57 yards. Your, your greatest responsibility is not to teach her how to crush a softball. Your greatest responsibility is not to teach him how to build a tree stand or catch a fish or plant a garden. Your greatest responsibility is to make him into a godly guy. And your greatest responsibility is to make her into a godly gal. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born to one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, for they will not be put to shame.
when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Solomon is saying, without God, life makes no sense. Let me say it another way. I'll borrow the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. Mom and dad, you teach your children a lot of things and do it well. But your greatest task is to seek first his kingdom. And all these other things, they'll fall into place. Because without God, without God, without God, life makes no sense. You can do life with or without God, but without him, it makes no sense. So today, if he's not invited into your life, will you do it right now, right here? If you are a follower of Christ, if you have influence over the next generation, which all of you do, maybe this morning you just need to pray and say, Lord, help me to guide the arrow well. Do not let me take my hand off the bow. Please do not let me take the hand off the bow. Help me, Lord. Because without God, life makes no sense. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Lord, help us to be skilled warriors. Help us to be Jedediah. Help us to be beloved of the Lord. Help us to guide well and influence positively the next generation. Lord Jesus, we give you this invitation. We pray that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.